This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. New home ownership can be a real eye-opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from The Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates. Now at homedepot.com slash workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101, only at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at homedepot.com slash workshops. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. You know what I want. <laughs> I want to talk Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Earl Sampson Folk, and today, a dear friend, my friend, my guy, Lewis Zatzman hops on for maybe the, the eighth or ninth time. I'm excited to chat with him. Lewis, you've been busy lately. Tell me about your life. How's it going, man? Hey, buddy. It's going well. Thank you. So glad to be here. Good to talk to you. Life is good. I uh, enjoyed the All-Star break. Got a little bit of a break myself, which was well needed how about yourself yeah I, I definitely took a little bit of a break so much to the point that I was watching the all-star game and thrilled absolutely enthralled with it and I thought man maybe I should do a reaction podcast for this game but then I indulged in what I thought was this is the break I'm gonna hang out and I'm not gonna do the podcast so I went out of my way not to do work, which I think is, that's exactly what a vacation is, right? So I had one of those, I suppose. I think so. We're not too familiar, but I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Yeah, it's, and a vocation is a job, right? Yeah, that's right. Do you, do you know why people moved away from vocation? Because job is kind of, it, it dresses it down, you know, like, oh, my vocation is, insert whatever your vocation is, but a job seems like dressed down. Do you think that's, aristocracy versus the the movement of the of the labor people what do you think that is an affectation of <laughs> i mean probably just you know words get simpler over time 
you know, we don't all have to sound so stuck up and prissy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? What is the lost word that you use that people decided to dress down to, to make simpler that you wish wasn't? Oh, man. I wasn't ready for these questions. <laughs> the lost word. Uh, I find often, you know, when I'm writing, some of the transition words I'll use make me sound really conceited. Um, you know, like indeed or uh, <laughs> so you could be talking about, you know, Kyle Lowry, you know, looking to pass more. And then the next paragraph, you'd be like, indeed, he collected yada yada number of assists, which in my head makes sense. It transitions between the two. But when you actually write it, it does make you sound like a little bit of an asshole. And so I think I need to, to pay attention to those sorts of words. So it's like a period piece, like it's Pride and Prejudice. Indeed, he did. Yes, he grabbed that rebound and bounded up the floor, finding Pascal Siakam for a hoop shot. Something a hoop, like that. Yeah, that's exactly how I write. Oh, that's exactly. the voice in my head right there. Well, that's maybe that's the best way to transition in because you, you wrote maybe close to an analogy of a, a Charles Dickens piece, a tale, a tale of Two Cities. And I, I wondered... And that was your piece, obviously, about, well, one of the pieces about how certain players, Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam, will be doing when they play in the playoffs. And I have to ask, do you think that Charles Dickens knew that A Tale of Two Cities would become analogous to a great many things? And by that I mean to ask, was he accurately predicting Fred Van Vliet's playoff run of last year and perhaps this year? <laughs> I think he had to know when he wrote that opening line, you know, the best of times, the worst of times, time of great light, of great ignorance, etc., or whatever. Uh, he had to know that that would be just inexhaustible, right? People could use that for anything. And so, yes, it applied to Paris and, and London at the time, you know, with the, the French Revolution was, was a time of great, you know, violence. But, I mean, he had to know what he was writing was universal. That's what makes it so so fun. So, yes, it does apply well to Fred Van Fleet because when you look at that, that playoff run, I mean, going back and looking at the numbers, I was struck. I mean, I was there watching them, and I didn't even remember how poor his play was in the beginning of that Philadelphia series. He scored one point over three games total. Like, it was the lowest of the low. It was wild. I forgot how, how bad he was there for a few games. It was demoralizing to watch, definitely, after seeing... Fred was a golden boy, in, in some sense, just by how well he paired with Kyle Lowry, the two-guard lineup that had seen so much success in the years previous. Him rising up from being undrafted, playing with the G League. Obviously, Raptors fans identify with that a lot. And he's a short guard, which... Fans are always happy to cheer for, but is there a Charles Dickens character that is James Ennis-esque? Who would that be? I don't know. Oliver Twist? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The Artful Dodger, maybe. No, I, <laughs> I'm i not sure. I mean, James Ennis was cut, right? He's no longer on the Sixers. Right, totally. Uh, which is crazy. Like, I know that Glenn Robinson and, and Alec Burks are fine wings i but, like burks quite a bit actually robinson I, yeah. not so much but burks i think is nice 
but much better than Robinson. I agree. But I think Ennis, like specifically in the Toronto matchup, Ennis has given Toronto trouble. He is longer, like defensively, he slotted in really well. He gave Fred trouble. I think I wrote in the piece, he blocked Van Fleet more mm-hmm. in those three games than points he scored. Uh, it was, I mean, he was a piece that I think helped the Sixers in that playoff matchup. I was surprised they cut him. If the Raptors had a stat like that against an opposing team, more blocks than points scored, could you imagine how often that would be trumpeted on Twitter against the opposing fan base? Raptors Twitter is merciless. It's a lot of energy, for sure. To, to outsiders, I mean, to, to its own, like to me and you. I get nothing but kindness. I'm sure you experience the same, but yeah. to anyone who dares question, you know, Kyle Lowry's greatness or or Fred Van Vliet's brilliance and grit, I mean, whew, it's scary times out there. Yeah, and in your piece, you obviously and something that's happened this year with Fred Van Vliet is that he's become more well-rounded as a player. You you obviously everybody knows, but you highlighted in the piece his I guess mediocre finishing at the rim. You said that if if you were a much better finisher, we'd be talking about him in the same breath as prime Deron Williams, which is super high praise because Deron Williams was incredible for quite some time, and Fred Van Vliet certainly has a lot of the I guess the dribble packages that look similar. He's uh, he's got similar pull up I guess potency, but when we talk about that well-roundedness of his game, and we're talking mostly about how he's playing, his interplay with different players on the team, what have you observed that's going to help him just be more valuable in the playoffs and not have those same lows that he had last year? Yeah, in a sense, I mean, that's that's the question, right? For him, at least, that's the question. And in a sense, some of the stuff that he didn't have last year, he still doesn't have. And so, like... Last year against the Sixers, they ran him off the line like huge guys. Jimmy Butler, you know, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons were running him off the line. And when he tried to shoot threes with them closing up, they'd just block his three-point shots. And then when he got to the rim, he'd face a huge amount of length. And as we know, he can get blocked. So, A, I mean, he's not taller. So it's not like he's shooting better over huge closeouts. And he hasn't added a mid-range game. So those mid-range pull-ups, he's still inconsistent at. And when he gets to the rim, he still struggles against length. So those sort of three direct things still give him trouble. And that's still what the Sixers look to do on defense. But indirectly, he's added a lot of counters. So the initial move, the initial problem still there. But counters from all three angles, actually, all three levels. So from deep, he's shooting from four, five, six feet behind the line. I mean, his range is way deeper. He and I talked about that a little bit much earlier in the year. And he's doing that, Nick Nurse said, explicitly because of that Sixers series. Uh, then in the in the mid-range, he's become a much better passer. He puts people in jail better. He moves slower. Uh, and so because of that, he doesn't really need to score. If he draws the defenders, he's better at finding his teammates, whether a, a cutter, a diver, or even a swing pass to the other side. And the same goes when he gets to the rim. He may not be that much of a better finisher, but he's a better passer from the rim. You saw that last night, actually. Um, he got a, he cut, got the ball right by the rim, drew a couple, and kicked an immediate pass out to Kyle, who had a little pin down for him, and Kyle hit the three. I think it was in the third or fourth quarter. But, I mean, he just 
he's added sort of secondary tertiary skills to be able to beat those exact problems that he saw last year. Well, you wrote about the Fred Van Vliet, Serge Ibaka pairing last year heading into the playoffs. And I'm interested this year when we consider, as you addressed, he has a discontent seemingly for the mid-range jumper. Even from last year to this year, he's shooting from there less and he's shooting worse in those situations. Those numbers aren't really that important just because his volume is so low. But the volume being low is definitely indicative of where he likes to go, where he's comfortable. Regardless, though, Serge Ibaka has made a killing in the mid-range and on the short roll this year and, and did pretty well with Fred Van Vliet as a partner. Do you think that his minutes in the playoffs sans Kyle Lowry are going to be mostly dependent on which big man he's working with at the time? Because I could really see that being something that Nick Nurse has to strictly stick to in the playoffs. You mean pair him with Ibaka only? Pair Fred with Ibaka? Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean... It's hard to say because Abaka has been so consistent, whereas Marc Gasol's scoring has sort of gone up and down a little bit. Right before he got hurt, he was looking to shoot a lot more. He was posting more. He was driving more. And if Gasol can take that scoring edge off, can sort of shoulder some of the burden, then I think he and Fred work really well together. Um, But as long as Gasol is just trying to facilitate, then yes, because... You know, Fred can cut back door all he wants and Gasol can find him. But if he can't finish around the rim and if Gasol's not going to shoot, then what are you really doing? And in the playoffs, you know, those passes that add 5-10% don't always get you somewhere. You kind of have to get the a good, a good shot instead of a great shot. And uh, Fred and, and Gasol both have tendencies to pass up good looking for great. So, uh, yes, I would say Ibaka solves that because he's always looking to score. He's been unbelievably consistent. Um, and so depending on what type of Gasol you have, I would say, yeah, you probably want Fred with Ibaka as much as possible. Yeah, the, the way I'm viewing it in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if if it's Gasol being pass-heavy, like you were saying, and Fred Van Vliet, and they don't have one of Kyle Lowry, and even if Pascal is on the floor, I find that Fred Van Vliet, it's much more important to pair him with a big man rather than with a wing. Just the way the different pacing and how he plays, I think that's what's important for his game. You can feel free to disagree with me on that afterwards. But I, I think that if they're playing with Lowry on the floor, I think that Fred Van Vliet with Gasol is really great. Because that relocation off of Lowry yeah. and vice versa becomes very important. The split action they can run. I think that becomes very important. But if Lowry isn't on the four, I think just going into pick and pop or pick and roll possession strictly between the two-man game, between Fred and Serge, I think will rescue some minutes. Maybe that's I'm idealizing it, but that's what I feel like. Yeah, it's pro- like you say, I actually agree with you completely. The Fred-Gasol two-man game is probably a little less potent, a little less able to carry the offense for stretches than the fred Abaka two-man game. Um, and, and, and I think just to build on that comment you made about Fred needing a big rather than a wing, um, he needs big screen setters. He needs someone who can really clear out space. Just because of his size, you know, space is at a premium. And so Siakam, for example, last night had a great play where he, uh, he set a screen, I think, for Kyle. And instead of his usual short rolling, he actually rolled all the way to the rim, got the ball, finished around help. And I think that was the most encouraging play of the game for me, at least with 
with um, uh, other than the post-ups, just because he's not a great roller. But him, you know, giving that other option gives, you know, Fred, Kyle, um, just that sort of other angle that they'll need in the playoffs. And so Fred probably will need that big screen setter. And and I agree. I'm not sure if Siakam or OG have proven that they're able to do that consistently. Although it's just to get maybe on the, the opposite side of my own argument here, though, against the Suns, I believe that Siakam and Fred had a couple of really nice two-man, I guess, actions that they ran to great success. I don't know if you recall that. One ended up with a three-pointer in the corner for Fred. One of them was a slip to the rim for Siakam. Do you recall that? No, no actually. Um, in the slip to the rim, who is screening? Who is handling? The, the slip was Pascal Siakam on the screen and Fred on the handle. It was it was um, started on the left side of the floor, but Pascal finished on the right side of the rim. That makes sense. And one thing Toronto has done well in the past is actually inverting that and having Siakam handle and Fred screen because Fred's a really good screener, and uh, that sort of throws people into chaos whenever they they use point guards as screeners because both point guards are good screeners. So there's options. I mean, I guess what we're saying is there's always more yeah. options than we think. Yeah, and I think that. Specifically with the uh, Gasol and Siakam and Van Vliet, if they're all sharing the floor together, you can do some pretty interesting, I guess, post entries for Siakam using uh, Van Vliet's gravity. But I'll, I'll swing that into Siakam-centric stuff, I suppose, who, who you also wrote about, but a guy who's absolutely killed it in the game since you've written about him. The Raptors have used him early and often in the post-up. He's been very conscientious of where the defense is. He's passing as soon as the first step is made from the help defense. He's found OG. He's found Surge. He's created open shots for shooters. He's been able to completely annihilate any single coverage he's gotten. Does the way he's played in the past couple games make you uber optimistic for how the playoffs might go? I know it's against the Pacers and the Suns, but do you see great things there? Yes, just straight up yes. I mean... I think the whole point of, and this is what I wrote about this morning, the whole point of what Toronto's going to try to do in the second half of the season is get Siakam reps where he sees lots of bodies, sees double teams, sees zones, sees big defenders, sees small defenders. Just get him seeing as much as possible so the playoffs can't rattle him. And he's seen it all. And I mean, the point isn't for success. They're actually running this stuff to subordinate success in the short term just to maximize it in the playoffs. But they've still been more successful than you'd expect. I mean, his post-ups against Indiana were unbelievable. He drew double teams, triple teams. He ran in transition to get early seals against smaller players. He, like you said, he passed. He he stepped out for fadeaways. He, It was the variety that he already has in his comfort level against whatever defense is just so much higher than you'd expect. It's it's really crazy. I mean, a lot of that is just when his three-point shot falls, everything else looks good, and, you know, he'll have cold games. But it's it's unbelievable seeing where he is now. Do you think if he's at this level now in the playoffs, do you think that's enough? Enough for, for what? For winning, for going to the finals. If he plays like he did against the Pacers and the Suns against top-level defenses then yes. If he's able to read, if he's watching, let's say he's posting up Josh Richardson 
on a mismatch, they run a, a nice post entry, let's say. One of the ones that you like a bunch where he comes around the back end. Let's say they yeah. ran one of those. He gets Josh Richardson. And he's that good at finding a way to get around Embiid. And just the way that he's using his pivot and his escape dribble to create passing lanes, really impressive. But if he's doing that against Brook Lopez and Giannis and against Joel Embiid and Al Horford, Ben Simmons, whomever, that I think that unlocks a ton of stuff. I was on the Confederacy of Dunks podcast, and we were talking about Pascal Siakam, and I thought that he would go north of 25 points per game in the playoffs, and I thought that we'd see more possessions with him on the move because a lot of his possessions this year have been stagnant. Yeah. He's had a higher percentage of isos than Kawhi even had last year. He's top five in isolations taken. He's only marginally in the top 15 as far as the um well not even in the amount of people who take isolations in the top 15 percentile who take the most isolations he's 12th out of 15 so he's not super efficient for the guys who take a bunch of those i think russell westbrook is worse maybe i can't remember who the other guy is it's it's not been a great play for him and that's that makes sense considering he's a long four the isolation was not made for big men really but he's done a great job as far as what's expected of him. But I think they'll put him on the move. But do I think that if he plays and the post-up becomes as potent as we've seen in the past couple games, I think that's definitely enough to... Because I think that Milwaukee's the team to beat. If they make the finals, I think they win. So if he's able to slow the game down when he's in the half court, speed it up when he's in transition, as well as he has in these past two games. I believe that the Raptors are such a good team. If they have him at that level, then it becomes a, it becomes a team that can win it all for sure. And the question, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think a lot of the isolations and post-ups, he's also in the top 15 in post-ups attempted, by the way, and about league average, he's not, you know, elite. Um, but, uh, you know, all of those numbers aren't because Nick Nurse and the Raptors want to win regular season games. They're running all of those stagnant plays just to get them practice. And I, I agree that we'll see less of it in the playoffs or, you know, less than less unnecessary stagnant plays, maybe. But my question is, I mean, we know how much Siakam can succeed when teams don't have elite Siakam defenders, right? There's only a couple, Giannis, Embiid. Bam Adebayo, uh, Anthony Davis, this handful of guys who are just as quick and then bigger and stronger and longer. And do you think it can transition to those defenders? Can he be just as successful against those guys? Yeah, that's the tough question. And that's the Jonathan Isaac matchup, I think, would be the best one to look at as far as how he's going to lose his primary but it loses its weight when you think about the help side defense that came along with it. You know what I mean? Because Pascal Siakam in that series did a great job of shedding Jonathan Isaac with off-ball movement, some of the actions that the Raptors ran for him. Really sophisticated, really great. Pascal, really diligent in being able to get his own shots, but not super great at creating for other players off of that. He was playing the role of finisher. Mm -hmm. And then when things got a little bit tougher to the point where... He had to get past Brook Lopez, who was sitting off of him, and Giannis was the help side. Slipping past Brook Lopez didn't mean that the play was done like it did against the the Magic and getting past Isaac. So getting past an, an Adebayo and having another player waiting in the wings or trying to get past a Giannis, that's, that's a tough thing for... <laughs> 
for Pascal to do. And it basically comes up to where is he able to get to places where he's comfortable? And at this point, the places that he'd be comfortable at would be obviously the rim if he's headed downhill and almost nowhere but that. So it's Pascal having to draw the defense in and make intelligent passes off of that. And that's something that the the MVP of last year, Giannis Antetokounmpo, he didn't even do that well against the Raptors last year. So Pascal either has to start working in that, I don't know, 12 to 14 foot floater and start hitting it at probably 44% and up to really unlock some of the, I guess, stagnation of the Raptors defense at times. And I'm sure we'll see it in the playoffs or he needs to be making really impressive passes. So we haven't seen that step forward in the floater game, certainly not in volume. It's We've seen him make shots from there for sure. But the steps forward in passing, even out, sorry, even out of the post-ups, I think is it's definitely encouraging. I don't know if he's all the way there yet, though, because it's it's easy to think of the Raptors as this team that comes along and smokes teams. But until we see them in the playoffs, even last year, I know the team won the championship, but there were a lot, even with Kawhi Leonard in tow, there were a lot of times where the offense was really stuck in a place and only Kawhi going downhill, snaking the pick and roll for a mid-range jumper. That was how they would get eight points in the space of five minutes sometimes. So Pascal, whether he's creating for players on the weak side, maybe OG ducking in, OG spacing out, Fred Van Vliet or Kyle Lowry on relocation, of course Gasol and Ibaka figure in as well. Whether he's creating for them going downhill or he starts making those shots, one of those things has to give probably both. And that's obviously a work in progress. I don't have a definitive statement on this, but I think I, I covered the bases on what he needs to do, maybe. So zoom out with me then. And this is sort of what I'm building towards with the series of, you know, how will this player do in the playoffs pieces that I'm too deep into. But so, yeah, Toronto, you know, Fred added those elements of his game that, you know, he, he was missing in last year's playoffs. So the bottoming out that we saw probably won't be won't happen again. Pascal is a much better passer. He's a much better shooter. Um, and so, you know, if Brooke Lopez sits 10 feet off of him, he'll just he'll shoot 10 threes a game. And that should, in theory, be a, a one game for Toronto. Um, you know, so so, yes, they fix some of those skills. But zoom out to the big picture. Do you see Toronto avoiding? those same slumps where they really couldn't unlock the offense out of the mud? Or do you think that'll be an even bigger problem this offseason or this postseason? Yeah, that's a tough question because Pascal, his willingness to pull up from three should erase some of those problems. But we haven't seen him pulling up from three as much in the in the playoffs yet. The three-pointer, it definitely evaporated to some degree last year. I would expect it to evaporate to some degree this year. Not not to the point that it's no longer a weapon, just I don't think we'll see. I think he's attempting about six a game right now. I don't think we'll see that heavy a load in the playoffs. I just That's just me. I think when it comes, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. I think that'll funnel him downhill. That's That's just a guess. But if he does keep shooting threes like he does now, and technically there's no reason to expect him not to, then that does massage out a lot of the problems for the Raptors because the defense won't be able to press up as much or won't be able to sag as much, and it'll have to be more fluid. But 
teams in the playoffs generally get really good at playing the the three-point line, that's going to be a tough thing for the Raptors to navigate. And I think every single playoff series, almost even against the Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors, however many years ago, they took all those threes and they, they should have dropped, sure, but the middle of the of the paint was wide open. Not sorry, not the paint, but the middle of the the half court was wide open. And you have to make some shots there. And just that has to be some part of your offense in the playoffs. I'm yeah. rambling at this point, but at one of Kyle Lowry or Pascal Siakam, because it likely won't be Fred. Serge will shoot from there, of course, but he can't be their only option there. One of those guys has to step up in some way to create viable offense from there because the Raptors, they're, they're very, very deep. They're, they have a, a very high variable to their offense. They create it in a lot of different ways. And we're just waiting on how many of those ways will translate to the playoffs because it's been comfortable a lot of the time recently. And I think maybe we forget how uncomfortable it was at times. So it's, it's interesting because the Raptors definitely need that, but they're so proficient in other areas that you wonder how much they'll need it. Yeah, which is, I mean, to come full circle here, which is what's so interesting about Nick Nurse being open about force-feeding Siakam, you know, extra touches to the detriment of the offense, right? Because you exactly like you just said, it gets uncomfortable in the playoffs. So Nick Nurse says, how do we prepare for that? Let's simulate discomfort just by making it harder on ourselves than we need to, right? Let's give Siakam touches outside of the flow of the offense, make it a little yucky, see what happens. That's the only way to practice for it. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I'm glad you brought it full circle, but I, I was rambling. I didn't have, I guess I didn't say that. I believe Siakam can do those things. I believe that Lowry, for periods of time, will be able to lift the offense, certainly in the pick and roll as a, a shooter, and that the the Raptors definitely, they'll have intelligent and creative sets to run when things bog down as well. But I, I do believe in the team. If, it, it doesn't mean I'm predicting them to win, but I definitely believe that they can get to that point. But I'm, I'm ready to transition us out of the, uh, the projecting the playoff talk, if you're good with that. Let's do it. All right. So, came up with a list of sorts. The list is Anthony Davis, Embiid, Jokic, Gobert, Towns, Vucevic, Sabonis, Adebayo, and then a slash. Aldridge, Trez, Drummond, Capella, Whiteside, and Ibaka. Twelve names there. Abaka probably is in the top ten big, big men in the league at this point, right? Like actual centers? Like, because Anthony Davis technically doesn't really play center. Javal and Dwight play center. You know what I mean? But when yeah. you think of guys who fit that mold, because Siakam certainly doesn't. Guys like I mean, that. Yeah, maybe. He has been unbelievable. That's, I had to ask that question because he has really the the level of shot making. The I know you and I were talking about in the Mike Prada podcast, we were a little bit surprised that he didn't think there was much of a difference between Ibaka and Gasol. And, and obviously you and I view that as there's a stark contrast between when the two are playing defense. It definitely changes a lot of things to our eye. But that doesn't mean that Ibaka has been bad. He's actually been rather good defensively. And offensively, what more could you ask? I mean, in the last month and a half, he's almost 50, 40, 90. It's incredible. So I think it's maybe I want to have that conversation. Has he vaulted himself into the top 10 
big, big guys in the league. Maybe even right. leapfrogging a guy like Aldridge at this point just because they're after success. All right, run through your list again for me. Say those names one more time. Okay, so I'll tell you how I split it up too so you can tell me if I'm wrong. So oh, right. I have AD, Embiid, Jokic, Gobert, Karlanty Towns, Vucevic, Sabonis, Adebayo, Slash, and then the next tier of guys I think is Aldridge, Trez, Drummond, Capella, Whiteside, and Ibaka. And I think Ibaka would be at the top or the top two of that next grouping of guys. Yeah. I mean, what about guys like, uh, I don't know, like Aiton or Porzingis? Would you just say they're not centers? Well, I would. I just think that, well, Aiton definitely, I haven't seen enough. Like not not in a, not in a, I haven't watched enough. I just don't think the league has seen enough. I don't think he's been as present as somebody would need to be to be on this list. Like for Whiteside, I know there's all the detractors, but he's played the games. He's he's we have an idea of what his game is at at its best and at its worst. Aiton, I don't think we have that yet, and I don't think he's put in enough, I guess, games and success to to be included in it. Trez, we know what we're getting. Drummond, we know what we're getting. Capella, we know what we're getting. Aldridge, Ibaka, I feel like we know what we're getting with all those guys. Porzingis and Aiton's injuries and just fewer games, it feels like it, I don't know if I'd include them in there. Porzingis maybe deserves to be in there, but I, I'm low on Porzingis. Maybe too low, but that's that's just me. No, I think Porzingis and Miles Turner are similar in that they're both just gigantic shooting guards who yeah. can't really dribble <laughs> that's miles turner when he played against the raptors in that the the norman powell series the first one where paul george was inferno against the raptors miles turner was probably the second best player for the pacers in that series he was awesome in the pick and pop he played great help side defense he looked like a monster and he shot the ball really well from three and from mid-range so it made it seem like I was really high on Miles Turner for a long time because of how he played against the Raptors in the playoffs. But I've softened on that quite a bit. Sabonis is definitely, he's taken that next step, and Turner is left behind, it seems. It's funny, have you talked to Joe Wolfon from The Score about this? About Turner and Sabonis? Yeah, about Turner specifically. He So I was talking with him about it. He made that very same argument about, man, I loved... You know, I love Turner in that Raptors series, and he just hasn't taken any steps since then. I agree. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't talked to Joe about that specifically, although I've talked to Joe about tons of things, but I guess not his his beloved Pacers, which seems odd. But um, I, I hope with that, it, it the, the takeaway is that smart people see the same things, because I think Joe is brilliant. So I'm, I'm glad I'm seeing the same things as him. I mean, I agree with you, though. I think it has to be... Ibaka's probably a a top 10, top 12 center, right? I mean, he has been so consistent. The thing that he gives you that none of, you know, that other tier of scorers is guys like uh, Whiteside or Jaron Jackson Jr. or Trez or Aldridge is they are just less consistent offensively. You know, they'll have games where they'll give you eight points and they just, they're negatives and they can't be played. And Ibaka, even two years ago, maybe was, you know, could be labeled like that. But this year, he's just been so unbelievably consistent on offense. 
Um, I agree with you, his defense lags a little behind, but he hasn't been nearly the negative at center that people thought he might be uh, maybe a few years ago. It's his consistency, which was once the knock, has now become his greatest strength. Yeah, that's the thing, is you you said that the other players, they have games where they're negative. It has been a very long time, I think, since we've seen a game like that from Ibaka. I can't even think of one off the top of my head. And last year, you know, last year he had a great year as well, but there were games where Valanciunas was out and you kind of knew that Ibaka was going to get dominated. And that was, them's the breaks, you know? A game like against the Pacers this year where if Ibaka had to go against Sabonis, we might expect the Raptors to to struggle mightily. But he's doing really well in those matchups now. And that's, I, I don't know, everything in that sentence seems really encouraging. And it is, I guess, a, a credit to his to his consistency. Last year, as recently as the playoffs last year, any second Ibaka had against Joel Embiid was a negative for Toronto. I mean, it went so far as, um, you know, people think of Nick Nurse putting Kawhi Leonard on Giannis as the big decision in the playoffs. But I think matching Marc Gasol's minutes with Joel Embiid's was just as important. Um, and I think Ibaka has been much more successful this year in the regular season against Embiid than he was the playoffs last year. It's crazy how much he's improved around the edges. Who could have... And he's 30 now, right? So I guess it's not that crazy, but... Well, there there was some, I guess, those, those types of talks that Ibaka himself hated about his age, and certainly not one that I'd like to give credit to, but there there were talks, and I think that affected the discourse around him, that he was older than he is. I don't believe that. You know, people progress and regress different ways in their careers, but it seemed like people were attributing his downfall or his worst play to being older than he actually was, which seemed like maybe a type of racism, to be quite honest, assuming that he was born in some jungle in the Congo instead of a hospital with records and all that kind of stuff. I yeah, I, I think definitely racist, probably not even worth discussing. But I think the much bigger reason, obviously, the you know, because the one isn't a reason at all. But the reason why he looked like he regressed after that first year or two coming from Orlando is just because his role was inconsistent. I mean, last year, the jumpers that he was taking, he didn't know where they were coming from. His threes were often not great threes. Uh, and the year before that, he was asked to pass a lot more than he was used to. He was used to being a finisher, and then, you know, 17-18, Toronto's everyone has to pass, egalitarian offense, and it worked really well for DeMar DeRozan, for example. Ibaka never really got the handle, you know, on that whole offense. He also... He used to take a lot of post-ups, man. A lot of yeah. fadeaways, too. But that's completely out of his game now. It completely doesn't even exist. Gone. He's just a pick-and-roll guy now who just who runs in transition. He gets a couple post-ups here and there, but he, he looks to pass out of them, which is much more efficient than shooting out of post-ups pretty much across the league. And he just... It's clicked. It's taken a few years, but now that his role is consistent, now that he knows exactly where his jumpers are coming from... It's just, it's all been put together, man, and it is a treat to watch. Yeah, it's, maybe if Dwight Howard had the 
the same ability to, I guess, grow and accept a place in the pick and roll as Serge Ibaka. I think he would have won a chip by now. It's that's yeah. the level of, I guess, growth we've seen from Ibaka and the ability to accept a role and grow within it. It's you don't see it very often from players. You know what I think the biggest thing would be is it's you can see that swagger where a guy walks down the floor and he knows he's taking the shot. He knows exactly what part of the floor it's coming from. He knows where the defense will be when he takes that shot. I mean, Larry Bird famously had that when he, right, he pointed to the court. He says, this is where I'm going to hit the game winner from. And then he did, and he was upset at himself for leaving too much time on the clock. I mean, guys have that, that knowledge, that look, that cockiness when they know. LeBron James does that all the time. He just he knows he's going to take a three, and he just walks down the floor with all the confidence in the world. Ibaka does that all the time now. I mean, you saw that against Indiana last night. The first four possessions, five possessions, he, he took every shot. And I think he shot like he missed one maybe. He just he knew exactly where the shots were coming from. He knew no one could stop him. It's unbelievable. Well, that's that's the thing that makes me there's a guy like Sabonis who is unquestionably a phenomenal big man and Ibaka comes into a game and Sabonis the raw numbers a lot of the time are better when they've played and Sabonis is great but that doesn't seem like a mismatch. That doesn't seem like the Raptors are going to lose the game at that position. And the fact that Ibaka regularly against Vucevic, Embiid, they won a game against Embiid, Sans Gasol, and just the way he's able to get up for games against other all-star centers or all-star big men and play them close to even, it seems like. Of course, the Raptors, you know, crazy defense and rapid swarming defense helps, of course. But he's able to play those matchups close to even sometimes and not while dropping off against lower guys. It just seems like he's he holds his floor, which is really high. We talked about the consistency. But he can sometimes get above that and start playing above his head seemingly. But he'll never drop below his floor, at least not this year. It's one of the most impressive campaigns I've seen from a big man who's transitioned into this type of player. His on-off to start the year, and even through to maybe a month ago, was a little bit problematic. He had one of the worst on-offs on the team. But even that's been turned around a huge amount recently. To the extent that against Phoenix, I mean, that could have been a 40-point win too if Ibaka didn't have foul trouble. Because when he was on the bench, Phoenix made a run. And as soon as they brought Ibaka back into the game in the fourth quarter, Toronto put it away with ease. It's, I mean, for a while this season... His individual play didn't necessarily result in the Raptors outscoring opponents, but even that has become a, a factor of his play as well recently. When he's on the floor, Toronto's blowing out opponents now. Yeah, 100% agree. But I think that's a great place to take us into the ad read. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back. Still listening to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. Still Samson Folk hosting. Still joined by my guy, 
my buddy, Louis Zatzman. And the first Twitter question that we're going to hear is from Anthony Doyle, a colleague of ours at Raptors Republic. He, he asks Terrence Davis, best rookie who plays like a veteran or best veteran who happens to be a rookie? I'll swing this one to you, Lewis. What do you think? Yeah, you you know how high I am on on Terrence Davis. And I think he actually, the veteran part of that, fun though it is and well-phrased, is maybe a little overstated. He still makes rookie mistakes. I mean, the other night he really blew a switch. I mean, he got screened off a guy. You could see that the, the defender of the screener called switch. Terrence froze in the middle of the floor. I mean, then looked around, jumped over to his original mark, who was already covered, double-teaming him off the ball, in effect. And his guy was wide open for a shot that Siakam just closed the gap on an instant, ended up being contested. They missed the shot. I mean, he still makes pretty sizable rookie mistakes, but just his his counterpunch, his ability to just turn into this volcanic god of scoring is just, it's crazy. I mean, an undrafted guard who's shooting, what, 40-something percent from three, who can drive in transition, one of the best offensive rebounders from that position in the league. I mean, the upside is what makes it so incredible. Yeah, that's the thing is, to be considered a veteran, and I, I think you'll agree with me on this, although I haven't heard it spoken before, so this is officially my take. Get ready for it. It's blistering hot. <laughs> I think that all you need to do to be considered a veteran in the NBA is hit open three-pointers. That's pretty <laughs> much, if you do that one thing, you can play in the league forever. And people will be like, God, this guy, he's a vet. Rudy Gay transitioned into that. Jared Dudley, who, whoever else. If you hate open three-pointers, everyone's like, what, what are you going to do? This guy, he's a vet. Ariza, even. And Terrence Davis came into the league, and the way teams were playing him, obviously, in the notebook, it said, hey, this guy doesn't shoot it so well. He started hitting his wide-open three-point attempts. And that made us all say, hell yeah, he can shoot it. We've seen this from Pascal last year. We've seen it from OG as well, right, where they get left wide open. The Raptors, development, their developmental team, really good at training these guys how to align their body, how to make it so they're consistent when they have a wide-open shot. But Terrence Davis suddenly starts hitting pull-ups, starts hunting off of pin downs, off of curls, any type of three he can get. His footwork is changing, but up top, he's the same. He looks more like Ray Allen than he does OG Ananobi. It's even though I think a lot of people were thinking big for his position, strong guy, needs to work on his shooting. Maybe he's going to be similar to OG as far as when he comes in the Raptors. He's going to defend, he'll rebound. But it ended up that he becomes, what, a three-point specialist? a guy who's going to run out and transition all the time, it's tough to even reckon with what Terrence Davis exists as. I think it was, I can't remember, uh, his, he used to be, Jacob Mack from Raptors uh, HQ said that he would, and he's a draft guy, uh, apparently, so he watches a lot of those guys. He said that he would take Davis as high as number three in a redraft and says that he has considerable all-star equity. And, it's tough to try and take yourself out of it and ask yourself, what does Terrence Davis do? Because you think you're being a homer, right? Because you think, oh, well, there's no way Terrence Davis is that good. He was undrafted. And usually Manu Ginobili, four years into his career, everyone was like, oh, you could take him top five in that draft. But 
mere months after the guy was undrafted, you have people saying, well, maybe he could have been a top five pick. Has that happened? Is that a thing? I, I, I've never heard of that before. He's been so good from such a from being undrafted and not like an overseas undrafted. And I'm rambling completely right now. But I just what do you, I haven't seen anything like this before. Is this homerism? Am I am I off? Am I off base? What, what am I talking about right now? This will make you feel a little better. During one game in the winning streak, I, for, I forget which, it was just before the break, I was talking with Joe Wolfond again to bring him back on press row. And, you know, Terrence Davis was going through one of his eruptions. And I was like, Joe, you know, are we too high? Is it just a hot streak and we're all saying this guy's an all-star, a future all-star? And Are we just too high? Do we, do we not actually accept that this guy is as, you know, do we not accept what he really is? And Joe was like, man... You cannot be too high on Terrence Davis right now. And it's true. I mean, he is, if you start in the beginning, uh, I think Blake Murphy from The Athletic, of course, um, had the first read on, on Terrence because Blake has the first read on everybody. And he was saying, you know, he's big, he's strong, he's a converted point guard, Toronto wants him to initiate some. He can shoot a little, but his jump shot is a work in progress. You know, maybe expect him to be a good shooter a few years down the line. And that was positive. That was optimistic. I mean, Blake was saying this is a steal for an undrafted guy. And, I mean, to go from that to one of the best shooters statistically in the league this year, uh, yeah, maybe it is a hot streak. Maybe his play is just totally a mirage this season. But we're getting on you know, 60 games played almost. I think it's not, uh, I, I mean, I understand that it takes often more than a full season for three-point shooting to hit the accurate percentage, but it's more than just the shooting. The shooting is the most important part, but I mean, he is a great on-ball defender. He's a great attacker. He is a, a fairly lucid dribbling game, great rebounder. I mean, great in transition, very athletic. There's so many positives to his game that yeah I think seeing him as a future all-star from an undrafted player is reasonable so huge long rambling answer but no I don't think you're being a homer not not nearly as rambly as mine was but also uh just to shout out Adam McQueen I had him on the podcast of course also a colleague of ours at Raptors Republic but he was messaging me as soon as Terrence Davis signed on to the summer league, like, or sorry, not the summer league, after his summer league game that Adam McQueen attended and then signed with the Raptors, he was like, oh, buddy, this is my guy. Trust me. This guy, is in, he's incredible. And then basically we spent the whole summer league podcast talking about how much he loved Terrence Davis the second. And I guess that he was also a guy who was early on him. But he is, and to, I think it's 750 attempts from three-point land is where you're supposed to kind of level off, and that's the expected percentage you'll kind of sit at for your career. But the craziest thing, and I already said, is that Terrence Davis, it's a multitude of different shots. It, it's not a static spot-up that he's hitting at a high percentage like we saw from Pascal and OG. It's, it's so many different types of shots, which I don't know how that reckons with the, the expected level of, I guess, fall-off or the, the regression, but... The fact that it's coming from so many different places, in my mind, anecdotally, seems to provide credence to the fact that he may he might be a forty plus percent three point shooter for his career. But to swing us, oh, sorry, go right ahead. Yeah, he's at two hundred now, so not seven fifty by a long shot, but you know a big number. 
and also part of it has to be the eye test and his shot looks good right like it just i mean you know basketball really really well. great rotation he has yeah. really great rotation on the ball yeah anyway please continue you were moving us along yeah so we'll we'll take on the next question from jeff berg at jeff berg 42 says no gasol no pal no chance question mark yay or nay i i guess we'll answer this in two ways like this is probably referring to the milwaukee game I, I'm assuming because I think we assume that they'll be healthy for the playoffs. So for the Milwaukee game, I assume no Gasol, no Powell, no chance, yeah or nay. What do you think? I think they always have a chance. I, I say nay. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the Raptors are, I don't know, they're plucky upstarts. They can never be taken out of a competition. They like they beat the Lakers with Chris Boucher and co. earlier in the year. And that was not catching the Lakers unaware. That wasn't the Lakers in a, a low point in the season. The Lakers were winning every game pretty much. And I think that was their third loss of the season was against the Raptors 905. There is something, some sort of effervescence that exudes from the Raptors organization, Kyle Lowry as a coach or as a player on the court, Nick Nurse, whatever that provides the, I don't know, Michael's secret stuff, as it were, to the Raptors, this winning component that they always seem to have. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Raptors are able to take it. In fact, I have a, a screenshot from somebody who said they were going to get spanked. And if the Raptors win, I might do my first ever sassy quote tweet. Maybe maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I, I think the Raptors, they, they have a shot at it. Well, wow, I've never known you to uh, to dunk on people on Twitter. That's a new, that's a new Samson. <laughs> it was it was very um, it was a very bold type of uh, take on the Raptors. So I thought maybe maybe I'll come back to this. I'm not sure. The likelihood is not very high. I, it probably won't happen. But I, I thought maybe it happens. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I I think in a playoff series. I, I don't know if Toronto has a huge chance against the best teams without Powell or Gasol. They're just they're really important over seven games. But in any individual game, I, I, I would never you could take out Siakam, Lowry, you know, Gasol and Powell, and I would still say that they have a chance in any off in any single game. Yeah. They're it's an incredible team with a multitude of different ways to win. But I'll take us into the next question from Cohen Swinkle says how can Boucher, this is your guy, sorry, I'll, I'll ask it again, but this is your guy, Lewis. How can Boucher get playoff minutes? What can he do to make that happen, apart from injuring Ibaka or Gasol? <laughs> well, I wrote a piece, I forget when, it was maybe a month and a half ago, um, saying it was during the huge stretch of line of injury. And I was sort of saying they should use a lineup of Kyle Lowry, um, Terrence Davis, OG Ananobi, uh, Chris Boucher, and Serge Ibaka. Um, I just, it makes sense defensively, it makes sense offensively. I had all of these arguments. And the main reason why they haven't is because Nick Nurse, uh, for whatever reason, does not want to use Boucher and Ibaka together. Um, I'm not sure why. Nick Nurse does see Boucher as a power forward, not as a center. He said that many times to media. So I'm not sure what the specific problem is with him as a power forward next to Ibaka. But um, I don't think there is a path to him playing 
unless he is able to play alongside Ibaka. Because as long as you have Gasol, I think Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, just because he's such an unbelievable team defender, he can guard you know way up on the positional spectrum, because he's such a good cutter, I think Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is a much better partner next to, uh, next to Gasol. But I think unless Boucher is able to play with Ibaka, I don't think there really is a, a way for him to play with, with if Toronto is healthy. Yeah, and I think that's the Rondé Hollis-Jefferson point, I think, is definitely the one to make. is He has actually been one of the, in his minutes, has been one of the best defenders in the league, especially in his one-on-one play. He's been guarded a lot of different types of players. He but he's people. been Yeah, and he's been great against a multitude of different types. There hasn't been a drop-off pretty much anywhere in any situation. He always gets up for those matchups. And just having him play next to Gasol... It makes a lot of sense. And one of Gasol or Ibaka is going to be on the floor at all times. There's pretty much no way around it. So Boucher either has to leapfrog Hollis Jefferson, which doesn't really seem possible because wing defenders are incredibly important in the playoffs just because of just the way the game is played. And it's yeah, it's tough to see that happening for, for your guy, Chris. But a guy that I was definitively wrong on coming into the season, I had a conversation with Adam McQueen, and you're gonna hate me for <laughs> you're gonna hate me for this. It's it's on the air. It's on a podcast. But it was us discussing about how I think it was Dewan Hernandez might feature better into the Raptors this year than Chris Boucher. <laughs> how foolish is that, man? I'm so dumb for that. <laughs> I can't I don't believe know. I said that. I mean, Dewan Hernandez looked good before he the did, season yeah. started. He looked like he had skills, maybe step back and shoot a little bit, good rebounder. I mean, the ankle injury, strangely, very, very long. But I, I am very upset. I was really looking forward to seeing Dewan Hernandez sort of grow as a rookie. It's a shame it was cut short. Yeah, and that's that's not me saying that Dewan is is bad. I, I still like Dewan. I still think Dewan can find his way into the NBA. But Chris Boucher has been... Very impressive, especially in certain spurts. He's he's done an incredible job of getting himself into a position where he's an NBA player definitively now and probably for the next few years. And Adam McQueen and I were, ta- <laughs> were talking about Dewan Hernandez over him. Unbelievable stuff. I'll, I'll swing us into the last, <laughs> the last question before we get out of here, which is from the Terrence Davis II fan account. With the Raps coming out guns blazing post-All-Star, what are some things that you can see that they need to shore up for the playoffs, if anything, really? And I'll, I'll swing this one to you to start. So there's categories. Over the the course of the season, there have been a few recurring issues. Uh, one of them, defensive rebounding, has been a real issue. Um, until recently, the past few weeks, it's been not solved as much as much. Um, OG has helped a lot, I think. OG's become a much better rebounder. Um, I think they've also just started blocking out more. Pascal has, after quite a dip to start the season, um, has become unbelievable on the defensive glass. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily a big problem anymore at all. Nick Nurse was asked about it the other day, and he said, "Uh, uh, yeah, I I think that may be behind us. Um, Turnovers have been an issue, especially because Toronto to win games needs to control the pace. And when you start turning it over, that's when you let other teams um, control the pace of the game. 
And so that has been not as big an issue over the course of the season as rebounding, but something of an issue. Uh, although, strangely enough, when they have 20 or more turnovers in a game, they're 4-1. and one. So, I, I mean, big numbers of turnovers haven't really coincided with them losing. Um, so that defeats my own point. And it's something that you hope in the playoffs with really veteran guards like Kyle and Fred, you, uh, you get a hold on. So not a huge issue, but something to keep an eye on. And then I would say the last sort of category would be the thing that we opened the podcast talking about is whether they can grind out points in the half court, how Fred does that, how Pascal does that. Yeah, I think it's the... I'll talk about the turnovers because I I completely agree with the rest of everything. The turnovers thing, definitely important. Do you think that the the 20-plus turnover game... The reason why they win those is because that might happen in a very fast-paced game. Have you have you looked at when in those games what the pace was? That's a good question. Um, well, one was just the other night against Phoenix. They right. had so many turnovers; it was it was crazy. Um, the other two, I can I can check right now. I mean, we have the technology, um, <laughs> but. Well, I'll keep talking while you check. Maybe it falls under, I, I can't remember if it was two or three years ago, where Marcus Smart, when he shot under 30% from the field, the Celtics were like 15-1. and one. There's also the, the Kawhi Leonard had the worst defensive rating on the best defensive team, the Spurs. Yeah. There's lots of different, uh, different types of statistical anomalies that seem to occur. This might be one of them, but... Feel free to cut me off whenever you you figure out the pace of the games. No, I agree with you that it is sort of a, um, a, a, a not necessarily true. But so looking at the eight or seven highest turnover games of the season, Toronto's won six of them. So the uh, game that just happened against Phoenix was the most turnovers of the season. And then the game against Minnesota where Rondé Hollis-Jefferson guarded Carl Anthony Towns all game. Uh, then both Boston games, the Christmas Day and then the following one, uh, or, or sorry, the Christmas Day and... and uh, the third game of the year, I think. Yeah, the third yeah. and the first against Boston. Um, so not Christmas. So they lost the one in October, and then they won the one after Christmas. And they were both over 20. So, I mean, if you... And then uh, also they beat OKC fairly recently as well. If you remember these games, they were quite fast. I mean, Toronto scored 130, 140, 130 in three of these games. Like, they were getting up and down the floor a lot. So if you were to look at their opponents' turnovers, I imagine, which I can do, um, (laughs) I imagine that they were equally as high. Um, So probably you're right. Well, that's Boston. That's why I want that series so bad, Boston and Toronto. That ball is going to zip around the court like crazy. Can you imagine if we got that series? The watchability of it would be sky high. Oh, it'd be, it would be unbelievable. And the other thing, I mean, you were talking about Mike Pratt, with Mike Pratt on your last podcast about Jason Tatum versus Pascal Siakam. How fun is it that they've both performed like absolute superstars since that conversation? Yeah, and I was I was of the mind, I think, two years ago, I was saying Jason Tatum, without a doubt, will become a top five MVP candidate in his career. And so I'm a little bit glad that he's gotten so much better, and I would have never guessed that about Pascal Siakam. But on that podcast, I wondered aloud, 
or said that you could you could make the case for Siakam being better. You can make the case for Tatum being better. And I'm going to ask you, Lewis, who's better at this juncture? Is it Pascal Siakam or Jason Tatum? Oh, don't make me do it. I mean, probably, probably Jason Tatum. Uh, Siakam is unbelievable. He is so good. But Tatum is just a little bit more polished at the things that matter the most. Um, you know, individual scoring, scoring from multiple tiers, places, angles. Um, Siakam is a much better defender, but I think the gap in the scoring probably matters enough that I'd give the nod to Tatum. Well, also, it's it's interesting that I think that Tatum is more polished offensively. And while I do agree that Pascal is a, a better defender, I think Pascal is like a first-team all-NBA level defender. And I hope he gets some consideration for that. But I think that Tatum probably is starting to creep up closer to an all-NBA spot for himself defensively. They both, it's just cool to see stars in the NBA who can really defend. We had years where Isaiah Thomas was one of the highest scorers in the league. And and now we have Tatum and Siakam and Embiid at the top of the, and Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo at the top of the Eastern Conference and Giannis. It's really cool to see defense take the forefront. I don't know if you've noticed that too. No, the East is looking more and more like the East that it used to be. You know, the grinded out defensive Eastern Conference. That's what it was known as. And that's starting to be what it is. But to bring us back, actually in those high turnover games, Toronto had higher turnover rates than their opponents in almost all of them. Uh, So it was not equal turnovers, which is strange. I would probably write that off as an anomaly and just say turnovers are bad. Toronto should look to avoid them <laughs> if it wants to win in the playoffs. I, I, I don't disagree with um, you bringing up the turnovers thing. I just wanted to ask what is the, if we could find a correlation. But I definitely agree. Turnovers, especially with the Raptors, sometimes they can stack up, especially in just in the middle of a game. Depends on how the game is going. Sometimes they string a couple together, and sometimes they go long stretches without any. But Staying away from bad stretches, of course, an important thing. And with the Raptors being so good at so many different things, you're kind of you're at straw you're you're pulling at straws anyway between what you're gonna highlight. Even with the defensive rebounding, when you said, Yeah, the defensive rebounding, we want that to be better, but I, I guess it is better in some sense now. And and with the turnovers, the next week we could see them completely transition that into being way more savvy with the ball. So it's I don't know. It's this team is very good. It's hard to hard to point outside of wanting mid-range scoring for matchups that we haven't even seen yet. I don't know what else you could highlight that they need to do. It's they're they're an incredible basketball team. Yeah, we'll find out, right? There's still a lot of the season left. There's the Bucks coming up Tuesday night, which I'm very excited for. Maybe problems will arise. But right now everything is hunky dory in Raptors land. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. For if the Raptors beat the Bucks, everything will be burned down in celebration. Or if they lose, everything will be burned down in in solitude. It'll, there's no there's no in between. Remember when we talked about Raptors Twitter being ruthless? Uh, we'll see that no matter what happens with the Bucks game. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the fallout. I, I specifically avoided doing the quick reaction just because I didn't want any of my writing stamped on that game in a reaction in a reactionary type of way. I'll keep it on the podcast. But, Lewis, I think this is a great place to, to get out of here. But before we do so, I have to thank you so very much for coming on. And 
I'm going to give you the floor. It's all yours to tell the people about yourself, what they should be reading, doing, whatever. Yeah, Samson, thank you so much for having me, man. I, uh, I am my name at Twitter, Lewis Atzman. Uh, I will be at the Bucks game actually tomorrow, of course, as media for Raptors Republic. So uh, if you're looking for anything for me, I would say stay tuned. I will have hopefully something very, very cool about whatever happens in that game. But thank you so much for having me, dude. As always, just one of the most fun ways I can possibly spend an hour. Oh, that's that's incredibly sweet. And let me return the favor by addressing the audience. Lewis is one of the best writers in Toronto. And you can never go wrong by picking up one of his pieces and reading it through before setting it down, then going to follow him on Twitter or comment something nice on Raptors Republic. Lewis, thank you so very much for coming on, man. Take care, buddy. Thank you. All right. And listener, this one's for you. Thank you for listening. And I'll let you get out of here, but not before I say thank you very much for getting into this, whether it's in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye. Did you know you could shop around for prescription prices? With GoodRx, you can find free coupons at over 70,000 pharmacies and save up to 80%. It's that easy. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Adam says, I've been telling all my patients about GoodRx. Jacqueline says, my medication was $65 without insurance, but I paid $25. Aubriana says, you don't have to pay full price to live your best life. Couldn't have said it better myself. GoodRx is 100% free. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance.